You are listening to the Purpose Church High School Ministry Podcast. Whether this is your first episode or you've heard them all, God has something to say to you. Our vision is to see every student everywhere following Jesus, and we hope this message helps you take your next step in your faith. To learn more about our high school ministry, visit our website, purposechurch.com HSM, and check us out on Instagram at purposehsm. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So the question, we're continuing our series, eight questions every high schooler should ask and answer about Christianity. We're going for the jugular. We're answering the questions that you and your friends that our culture is asking. And the question we are wrestling with tonight is this. Why does gender and sexuality matter to God? Wow, right? I don't know if you guys were here last Wednesday, but you remember, I, was, I had forgot what our topic was, and then Claire reminded me that's what we're talking about. And so I have been stressed all week trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to unpack this as a community? Why does gender and sexuality matter to God? So buckle up your seatbelts. We're going in the deep end here we go. Here's, here's kind of two big answers. We're going to cover so much tonight, but here's two sort of focused answers to that question. Why does gender and sexuality matter to God? Because number one, God created you intentionally, female or male, as a part of his purpose for your life. That God created you female or male as a part of his purpose purpose for your life. Number two, God created you for relationships. God wants you to experience relationships that glorify him. And when you choose to pursue relationships that glorify him, it will lead to your flourishing. These are two really, really big ideas. God created you intentionally, male or female, as a part of his purpose for your life. And God created you for relationships that glorify him, and those will lead to your flourishing. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, as we have this conversation in HSM, as we talk about sexuality, as we talk about LGBTQIA+, as we talk about our gender and why this conversation matters to God, my hope is you walked away. It's why I printed out my notes so you have them to reference. You can look at them later. You can take notes. You can discuss them. My hope is I'm equipping you here. I want to I resource you. I want to support you. I want to give you a deeper theological understanding for what the scriptures teach and, and what brilliant Christians have been saying throughout history when it comes to these matters. But I, I, I'm terrified. One of the things that scares me is that with all the information I'm sharing today, that you would forget the second part of this verse, which is, yes, you need to have an answer for the hope that you have. You need to have an answer, an understanding for why you believe the things that you believe so that you can answer with gentleness and respect. That everything I'm gonna share with you today is not to be weaponized against other people. It's not to make fun of other people. It's not to be used to degrade other people especially people who think differently and believe differently than us. This is to give you a greater understanding so that you could engage in conversations and share the hope of Jesus and why these things matter to God. And it may, it may cause your friends to reconsider. 
It it might invite them to think a little bit deeper about who God is and how God has made them. But I have made a personal decision that every time I talk about this concept, that any time I talk about LGBTQIA+, or sexuality and gender, I will always, always start where the scriptures start, which is with a foundational understanding that God is love. And maybe tonight, I don't know what you walked in this room with. Maybe you walked into some heavy, you walked in with this room with some heavy things. Maybe you just need this first big idea. Or maybe there's going to be some things that I'm going to share that you're going to, you know, I, I, that, that, that message is very different than what I'm hearing in culture. It's even different than what I'm feeling or what I wish was true. My hope is that whether you're discouraged today or, or whether you're going to struggle with some of the content that I'm going to share, that you will go back to this first big idea that God is love. That he profoundly loves you. Let me just make this really clear. In 1 John chapter 4, it says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Later in 1 John, it says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. God did not just tell you and I that he loves us. He has demonstrated it. He gave up his whole life. And some of you are walking in this room and this hasn't seeped in yet. And you just need to, you need to think on this and ponder this deeply. That you are massively loved by the creator of the universe. That no matter what you've been through, you are massively loved by Jesus. Look look at the detail with which God knows you. Psalm 139 says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Before a word is on my tongue, you know, Lord, know it completely. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. God is crazy about you, and he knows every intricacy of your life. He knows every thought you've ever had. He knows every feeling you've ever experienced. He knows the parts of your story that you don't want anyone else to know. He knows your deep-seated fears and insecurities, and he loves you. He loves you. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 says, The Lord your God is with you. God wants to be with you. Then it says, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you as singing. Students, as much as you want a boy to write the little cute, like, will you go to prom with me? Like, the, I don't know, like with Reese's Pieces letters or because your name is Reese or something. I don't know, whatever you're, whatever you're into. And you're like, I just want that boy to show me how much he loves me. Dude, God is singing over you all the time. Oh, this is a verse you can go back to when a boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you. This is a verse you can go back to when you're feeling alone and isolated and you feel like nobody cares about you. The scriptures say that God loves you so much that he is singing songs over you. It's why David said, how priceless is your unfailing love. How priceless is your unfailing love, oh God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Here's what I'm trying to say. God really 
really, 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 really loves you. In fact, I want you to turn to your neighbor right now. I don't want you to say, hey, God loves you. No, I want you to turn to the other neighbor that you rejected and say, even though I rejected you, God loves you. You guys, God really, really, really loves you. In fact, in fact, the truth of Scripture, the truth of Scripture is God loves us. Genesis to Revelation, every book, it's clear. God loves us. The question of Scripture is, do we love God? Students, maybe you don't even believe it. Maybe you've never felt it before. You can't imagine it. But when you walked into this room, God is massively in love with you. And he makes it crystal clear in his message to us in the Bible, his perfect word to us. He loves us. The question of Scripture is, do we love God? And maybe the next question is, well, how? How how do we love God? Jesus said it plainly. If you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, keep my commands. He he didn't say, if you love me, only listen to Hillsong worship. (laughs) He didn't say, if you love me, don't go to that party. He, He didn't say, if you love me, say all the right words in front of the right people. He just said, if you love me, you keep my commands, which means, which means for us as Christians, we recognize that God loves us. And the things I'm gonna share tonight, I imagine some of them are gonna offend you. They're gonna hurt you. You're gonna maybe walk away going, man, that just doesn't, I don't get that. How, how could that be? The only, the only way that we could choose to follow God is if we truly knew and truly believed that he was madly in love with us. And he's made it crystal clear in his story that he loves us. And he says, if you love me, if you want to love me in return, it means keeping my commands. It means what I say in here, you trust, you hold on to. Especially the parts that are hard especially the parts that cut against the grain of culture, especially the parts that because of the culture we're sort of baked into just seem to go in the opposite direction. We go, you know what? My culture doesn't love me. Not like God loves me. Your culture did not die on a cross and forgive your sin. Your culture is not granting you all of eternity in heaven Your culture can't deal with the issues of your life. God can. And he loves you. And he can be trusted. It's why Paul said in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Paul got to this point where he said, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said something really powerful happened. As soon as I became a follower of Jesus, my life wasn't my own anymore. That my life is now Christ. That he leads my life. That he calls the shots. That he tells me where to go. He shows me what to believe. And I trust him because he has done everything for me. And so students, God loves you. 
Big idea number two is this. God cares a lot about us knowing our identity. God cares a lot about us knowing our identity. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Maybe you've come to this place, you didn't know this or you've forgotten this. You were intentionally brought into this world by God. Whether your parents intended for you to be here or not, whether you felt like the people taking care of you care about you or not, God created you, designed you, brought you into this world. Then, G, then it says in John chapter 1, Yet to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So if you're not a Christian, if you're just a human, you are an image bearer of God. That you bear the image of God. You were created by him. If you are a Christian, you become his child. You, you become a part of the family of God. And Jesus doubled down on this when he said, haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. The Bible clearly teaches that humans are gendered sexual beings whose identity is not determined by how we feel or who we are attracted to, but instead we are image bearers, we are children of God, and we are chosen people. The Bible calls Christians to make their identity in Christ their primary identity. Here's one of the big problems in our world right now, is everybody is trying to find their identity in things that God never intended them to. People are trying to root their identity in their sexuality, their primary identity. They're trying to root their primary identity in a sport or a talent or how much money they have or how many followers they have on Instagram. And for the Christian, we've been given this amazing gift where we understand that we are image bearers, that we are children of God, that we've been chosen. And so we choose to make Christ our primary identity. The most important thing about me is that I'm a child of God. Before I'm a husband, before I'm a dad, before I'm a pastor, before I'm a friend, before I'm a competitive Olympic athlete, like before I'm all those things. Don't laugh, that's real. I was at one time, okay, I played volleyball. Um, before I was any of those things, and before I'm any of those things, I am a child of God. That my identity is in Christ. And if that's true, if my identity is in Christ, then I have to submit to him. Then I have to trust him. Then I have to keep his commands and I have to see myself the way he sees me. And, and, and what we're seeing in our culture right now is when people choose to just see themselves the way they want to see themselves, instead of seeing themselves through the lens of God, things fall apart. People get hurt in the process. So let me give us a few LGBTQIA facts and, and, and some definitions to kind of shape the rest of our conversation. Gender dysphoria is a strong desire to be of another gender, which may include a desire to change primary and or secondary sex characteristics. Same-sex orientation or attraction is when an individual has sexual and or romantic attachments towards a person of the same gender. 83% of LGBTQIA plus people were raised in the church. 51% of LGBTQIA plus people raised in the church will leave by the time they're 18. And 97%
of those LGBTQIA people who left the church chose to do so for relational reasons. They weren't listened to. They were mistreated. They were isolated or they were lonely. That cannot be our story. We can't contribute to that. Mark Yarhouse says this, instead of seeing the cause of same-sex orientation or attraction as either nature or nurture, that's what like, it feels like there's so much extreme in our culture. It's either 100% nature or 100% nurture. Most experts today believe that there are elements of both that contribute to a person's experience of same-sex attraction. Sexual identity refers to the act of labeling oneself based on one's sexual attractions or orientation. Common sexual identity labels include gay, straight, lesbian, and bisexual. Professor Diamond at the University of Utah has found that while 14% of women and 7% of men experience significant same-sex attraction, only 1% of women and 2% of men are only ever attracted to other women and or other men. She has also found that people's feelings can change over time, that many people have the same patterns of attraction throughout their lives, but some people start off feeling attracted to girls and then later find themselves attracted to boys or vice versa. The National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent Health, which surveyed 20,000 adolescents from 1994 to 2018, found that 4 to 7% of teens acknowledged same-sex attraction. And about 1% to 3% of older adolescents or emerging adults identified as gay, lesbian, or bisexual. The phenomenon of transgender children growing out of their transgender identity by the time they are adolescents or adults is called desistance by gender researchers. For decades, follow-up studies of transgender kids have shown that a substantial majority Anywhere from 65 to 94% eventually cease to identify as transgender. And Dr. Preston Sprinkle, love that his name is Sprinkle, said this. Experts on both sides of the pubertal suppression debate agree that within this context, 80 to 95% of children with gender dysphoria accepted their biological sex by late adolescence. Now let me make this clear. Let me make this clear. Having same-sex orientation is not a sin. Being attracted to the same sex, just waking up and realizing, and you know, I, I am attracted, maybe attracted to both. I'm attracted to the same sex. That is not a sin. Participating in a same-sex romantic relationship is a sin. Having gender dysphoria, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, it's real. It's very real. Having gender dysphoria where you literally feel as though you are not the biological gender that you are, having gender dysphoria is not a sin. Transitioning from your God-given gender to another is a sin. And remember, we defined it last week this way. Sin is trusting my feelings or desires over God's word. Now, let me give a few disclaimers. If you're experiencing same-sex orientation or attraction, or you're experiencing gender dysphoria and you want to talk, I want to invite you, if we can go to the next slide, I want to invite you to personally text me. And we'll keep that just between us. Because what breaks my heart is to think that you might be experiencing things, that you might be feeling these, and afraid to talk about it. 
I, I pray and beg that our HSM community is the safest place for anyone. So if you're attracted to the same sex, if you're experiencing gender dysphoria, you are welcome here. You are loved here. We wanna walk alongside with you. We wanna care about you. You can be a part of our community. And if you would be so brave and courageous, I would love to hear your story. Before making a lot of comments, before even talking about how we can help, I wanna just hear your story. Or maybe you'd feel better about talking to your life group leaders. Each one of our life group leaders would love the opportunity to talk with you and encourage you. I also want to take this moment to apologize and repent to any student experiencing same-sex attraction and or gender dysphoria who has felt like God doesn't care about you or that he doesn't love you because of something a Christian, the church, or myself has said to you. That it's clear as I began this message, God loves you. Whether you're attracted to the same sex or you're gender dysphoric, God loves you. And so do we. I also want to say this. If you are a follower of Jesus, it is a sin to hold homophobic, degrading, hateful, or dehumanizing thoughts, words, actions, or jokes in your heart and to direct them towards anyone in the LGBTQIA community. The Bible does not support that way of thinking or behaving, and Christians must set the example by demonstrating Christ's love. So let's talk for a few minutes about gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is real and should be taken seriously. Let me define it again. Gender dysphoria is a concept designated in the DSM-5, which is the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, as clinically significant distress or impairment related to a strong desire to be of another gender which may include a desire to change primary and or secondary sex characteristics. Now, what's the argument for uh, transitioning? What's the argument? The most common argument right now in favor supporting somebody transitioning from one gender to the other is what's called the brain sex theory. The brain sex theory suggests that one's brain might have its own sex or gender which in most humans is aligned with their biological sex, but in some people is misaligned. Some people, for instance, might be biologically male, but have a female brain or vice versa. This is the mainstream argument in favor of transgender. But here's the problem with that theory. Dr. Preston Sprinkle says, our brains do not come sexed as the body is. It's not like there is a male brain over here than a female brain over there. It does seem to be the case that males and females have general differences in their brain structures, the way our brains interact, but these differences are not absolute. I think it's just simply scientifically inaccurate and almost dangerous to say that a biological female could, for instance, have a male brain. I think it's very accurate to say a biological female could have male typical interests, could act more masculine, but that is totally fine. Do you see the argument here? The, 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 the reality is that no research shows that our brains, that there is a male brain and then a female brain. And because of that, we go back to scripture. Well, not because of that, but, but it, it reminds us of what scripture already says. 
that God is the one who creates us male or female. That it is our biological sex that determines whether we are male or female, not our brains. In, in other words, gender dysphoria is a psychological condition that needs to be treated as such and cared for as such. It is not a biological issue. Overall, for every brain region, this was written by a, a, a specialist who studied this, a secular guy, Stuart Ritchie. He said, overall, for every brain region that showed even large sex differences, there was always overlap between males and females, confirming that the human brain cannot, at least for the measures observed here, be described as sexually dimorphic or different. I, I read an article from a, a woman who had transitioned and I found it so interesting what she said in her own words. It was in Vox, a totally secular publication. She's not a Christian. This is what she said. Transitioning is also not a cure. I needed gender affirming surgery to alleviate gender dysphoria and feel as comfortable in my body as possible. But there is no cure for gender dysphoria. You can only treat the symptoms. And our ability to treat the symptoms is limited. I still experience dysphoria, even though my physical results have turned out well. When I'm stressed out, my dysphoria worsens, making it harder to deal with whatever was stressing me out in the first place. In February of 2013, a month into my transition, I admitted myself to a psychiatric ward because I was afraid I was going to hurt myself. Right here, in this, in this woman's own words, she says, transitioning. Treating gender dysphoria, the psychological condition, in a biological way by transitioning has not helped. That in fact, she continues to feel gender dysphoria when she's stressed. So even though she's transitioned into a body that feels more like what she had hoped for, she continues to experience dysphoria. In other words, transitioning is not the solution. I want to skip ahead in the interest of time to our next big idea, the Bible. The Bible commands a high sexual ethic for everyone. Every one of us, every person, heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, gay, lesbian, trans, all of us, every one of us is broken sexually, relationally, emotionally, physically, and biologically. It's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins as a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Paul here says, flee from all kinds of sexual perversions or immorality that is not what God designed. Jesus said, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus said it starts in our minds and in our Hearts. Let's go to our big idea number six. Big idea number six is this. Our culture has made an idol out of sexual and romantic relationships. Look at what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 7. Now to the unmarried and the widow, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. I would like for you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. Paul here doesn't say God's primary goal for your life is that you would get married, have 2.5 kids, and live with a house with a white picket fence. It's not in the Bible. In fact, Paul says, hey, if you want to get married, cool, get married. I actually would prefer you to stay single, but if you're going to get married, cool, get married. 
The lie of our culture is that romantic singleness means loneliness and isolation. But the truth is this, romantic singleness does not mean relational loneliness. The lie of our culture is the most important thing about you is who you're sleeping with. And Jesus says the most important thing is that you honor God, that you keep my commands, that you can be romantically single and still have relational wholeness and fulfillment. Paul said in Romans 12, so in Christ, we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. He says we're a family. We're a part of one body. Look at, look at David. David said, how the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. This was his best friend. King David says, you were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. David is not sexually attracted to Jonathan. He's just saying, I love this guy. He's my brother. And there was a kind of fulfillment in that relationship that was significant and meaningful. There, there are so many biblical heroes who were single. There's Jeremiah and Jesus, John the Baptist, Mary Magdalene, Anna, Paul, Lydia, so many others who fulfilled God's purposes for their lives even though they chose to be single. And here's our last big idea for the night. The Bible consistently commands God's people to not engage in same-sex sexual activity. Preston Sprinkle says, it's not about being affirming or being non-affirming. It's about being biblical. And that's what I'm hoping we're doing here. It's not about me trying to build an argument one way or the other. It's about us trying to stick close to God's word, trusting that he loves us, trusting that he has our best interests in mind. There are five passages in the Bible, five passages in the Bible that specifically address same-sex sexual activity. But there are countless passages in the Bible about relationships, about sexual relationships, and they always only affirm a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. And so there's five passages that very specifically talk about same-sex sexual relationships and call them sinful. But all over the place in scripture, it's clear that God affirms a relationship between a husband and a wife, a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. There are all the verses. I put them there so you could read them on your own. And in other messages, I've talked about each one of those. We are just going to look at one of them together. They all pretty much say the same thing, but I want to look at one of them with you. The one I want to look at is Romans chapter 1, 26 and 27. Because of this, God gave them over. Can we go back one slide? Because of this, God gave them over to the shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So here Paul identifies women and men who instead of engaging in a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, they instead exchanged those and began to have same-sex relationships. The context for this is the verses before where Paul says, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. 
for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Preston Sprinkle says something really brilliant about this. He says, Romans 1, talking about all those verses, he says, Romans 1 actually condemns both gay and straight people, a point that is sometimes missed when homophobic Christians unsheath the chapter and wield it against the LGBT community. The reference to sexual impurity from Romans 1.24 here is not limited to same-sex relations. It's a general statement that includes sex outside of marriage, adultery, rape, and all sorts of other sexual sins committed by both gay and straight people. And so first Paul says, you have, you've, you've, you've gone astray. You, you, you've sexually participated in things outside of what happens between a husband and a wife, and God is not okay with that. And whether it's same-sex relationships or it's any other kind of sexual relationship outside of between a husband and a wife, it's sin, and God's not okay with it. Now, there's a pushback against this verse. Some would say, oh, uh, th this verse where it's talking here, where it's forbidding same-sex relationships, it's not talking about adults who are committed to each other, who are of equal status, who are monogamous, and who are choosing to love each other. In fact, Preston Sprinkle says, many affirming scholars, meaning those who would say it is okay to be in a same-sex relationship and be a Christian, many affirming scholars will counter by pointing to pederasty, which is where adult men would have sex with teenage boys. This was a common practice in the first century in the Greco-Roman world. He said, many affirming scholars will counter by pointing to pederasty as the premier image of what Paul had in mind when he forbade same-sex activity. While affirming scholars are right to point out that pederasty was the most common form of same-sex relations in the Greco-Roman world, the truth is it was not the only kind. And I'm not going to go over each one of these, but I've put them in your notes. I've given you 10 examples there. 10 examples from the first century world when Paul was writing this. 10 examples, whether actual people in the first century or stories written in the first century of people who were in committed, monogamous, equal status, not one more powerful than the other, that were in a same-sex relationship with each other. What this proves is that when Paul was writing this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he was very aware of what he was saying. That just as there were people doing all kinds of crazy sexual things, that there were monogamous, committed, equal status, same-sex couples. And Paul here, he says there's a reason. There was a reason that we're called to trust God and what he calls good and how he has designed us. The Greek word, let's go to the next slide. The Greek word, paraphyzen, which is where we get the English phrase against nature or they were unnatural, as it said in Romans 26, that they engaged in unnatural things. That paraphyzen was simply stock language used by other Roman and Jewish writers to condemn same-sex relations. Extramarital or marital, consensual or non-consensual, pederastic or peer, paraphyzen was used to critique same-sex relations as against the design of nature, or in Paul's view, against the design and intention of the creator. 
The fact that Paul uses paraphysin in a context in Romans 1 that's saturated with allusions to Genesis 1 and 2 suggests that this meaning is most likely what Paul has in mind. To wrap up, I want to read a quote by Sam Albury. who He wrote a book. I want to encourage you, if, if you're looking for more reading, you can come and talk to me. But there's a book by Mark Yarhouse called Understanding Gender Dysphoria. It's a really, really helpful book. Preston Sprinkle, who I've been quoting a lot, wrote a book called People to be Loved. It's an amazing, amazing book. And then Sam Albury, he just wrote a book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies. What God Has to Say About Our Bodies. These are great resources. Sam Albury in, in What God Has to Say About Our Bodies says this. The clear implication of this from male and female in Genesis 1 to man and woman in Genesis 2, an implication everywhere confirmed as the biblical narrative unfolds is that a person's biological sex reveals and determines both their objective gender, what gender they in fact are, and certain key gender roles should they be taken up. That is, human males grow into men and potentially husbands and fathers. And human females grow into women and potentially wives and mothers. Indeed, it is this set of binary connections that makes human marriage possible. Let me close with two scriptures. First one is this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You have been intentionally created by God. You are not just a random product of cells firing together. You are not just led by the culture and what the culture tells you you are. You are created by God. And then here's, here's the last one. This is Jesus' own words. He says, are not two sparrows sold for one penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. He says, in our day and age, uh, you can't even buy one sparrow. The, the, lowest, the lowest common currency, a penny, could not even buy one sparrow. A sparrow was less than a penny. You had to get a two-for-one deal. And Jesus says, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Jesus says, these sparrows that have no value in your culture, God knows every single time one of them falls. He says, I know every single one of your hairs and you are valuable to me. And so if you're a Christian and you don't experience same-sex attraction, now you have some information, you have some things to reflect on on why we believe what we believe, but you are now commissioned and called to go and love and serve and care for and build relationships with those that are in the LGBTQIA plus community as a way of loving them and serving them. If you're in this room and you're experiencing same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, I want you to know what God says because he loves you and he wants the best for you. He wants your life to flourish. And there's a lot of other Christians who have experienced gender dysphoria and same-sex attraction and have chose to trust Jesus and to not act on those things, to not practice those lifestyles, but instead to trust God. And it's led to their flourishing. And we are a community where it's safe to come as you are. You are welcome here. You are safe here.
you're experiencing gender dysphoria or same-sex attraction, we would love the opportunity to hear your story, to walk with you, to love you, to follow Jesus with you. Because you matter to God the way you matter to God. I want to pray, and I actually want us to lead in worship.